0: Good morning, and thank you for that wonderful welcome, and happy Mother's Day today. Thank you um, for having us here. I'm looking forward to a roast cooked by three teenage boys when I get home, so goodness knows what that will be like. Um, It's a real privilege to be speaking today as part of this series, Building Up to Easter, looking at this theme of what it means to be reconciled and free to come home. Reconciliation. I wonder what you think about when you hear that word. And Time magazine reported that on a crisp, clear morning in 1914, thousands of British, Belgian and French soldiers put down their rifles, stepped out of their trenches and spent Christmas mingling with their German enemies along the Western Front. It was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914. And they even played, according to some reports, played a football match on the battlefield. Hopefully no penalty shootout on that occasion. Graham Williams of the 5th London Rifle Brigade described it in this way. He said, first the Germans would sing one of their carols and then we would sing one of ours until when we started, O Come All Ye Faithful, the Germans immediately started joining in the same hymn. And I thought, well, this really is a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word reconciliation. My father came here to the UK from Germany after the war as a refugee with his family. Reconciliation is a deep longing of the human heart. It is a longing for safety, for peace. It's a kind of homecoming that meets our deepest need for belonging. And the testimonies we heard so brilliantly on the, videos, uh, on the video earlier pointed powerfully and practically to what that might look like. So as we think about this theme today, reconciliation and coming home, let's think what it might mean to come home via a king's cross. The book of Romans describes us as human beings being in need of reconciliation with God. Paul writes, If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We were enemies in need of reconciliation. A number of years ago, Frog and I were living and working, leading a church in the inner city in London in a place called Peckham. And we were reaching out to lots of young people, including young people involved in gangs. And one day, um, a a gang fight had been set to occur in the local park. And a little team of our youth um, leaders became aware of this through the discussions that were happening with the young people. And they decided to show up and to try and stop any bloodshed from happening. So as they showed up, they, they arrived and thought let's bring a football and see whether we can change the situation around a little bit. So they arrived and these very, very kind of tough guys with all their insignia and their their signs of what gang they belong to were ready to fight. And these two rather lovely um, Cambridge graduate youth leaders sort of stepped in and said, could I possibly suggest that instead of fighting, your life is worth something. Let's play football instead. <laughs> and amazingly, God intervened. And instead of the fight that day, there was a game of football. We were enemies in need of reconciliation. We perhaps don't like to think of ourselves uh, along the lines of a, a gang member in, in southeast London. But the Bible describes us as being in need of reconciliation. How could we have become enemies of God? Now it may come as a surprise to hear that a world where people are at odds with each other and at odds with God, a world in which we don't even live up to our own ideals, let alone living up to God's ideals, that world is not denied or shied away from by the Bible. The Bible describes the real world that you and I live in, not a fantasy world of fluffy bunnies where everything sort of works out nicely, like a sort of Disney movie in the end. The Bible describes the difficulty and pain and sometimes that uncomfortable nature of what it means to be a human being, our need for reconciliation. Sometimes in the church, we can be a bit uncomfortable about describing reality, but the Bible doesn't shy away from this. The story is told of a woman who had a daughter who was six years old, and this girl came home from school, and she said, "Um, "'Mommy, how did I come to be born?' And the woman wasn't ready to have that conversation with her daughter. So she said, well, darling, the thing is that a big fat bird called a stork flew over our back garden and it had a beak and it had a bundle in its beak. And inside that bundle was you, a baby, and I took you into our house. The girl looked a little quizzical. She said, "Mummy, how did you come to be born? The woman didn't know how to stop digging. She still wasn't ready to have that detailed conversation with her daughter. So she said, thing is, darling, a big fat bird flew over granny's back garden, and the same thing happened. I was that baby. The stork bought bought the baby in a blanket. And that's just how it is. She shut the conversation down. So the next day, the girl went back to school, and she wrote in her project on birth, there hasn't been a natural birth in our family for three generations. (laughs) We sometimes avoid reality, don't we? We sometimes find um, pain or um, talking about kind of the need for reconciliation a bit uncomfortable. But the Bible doesn't do this. The Bible doesn't deny the truth about our situation. So how could we have got into this situation where we need reconciliation with God? Well, we might start by taking a step back and asking... Why do human beings care about darkness, massacre, hungers, injustice, the suffering of other human beings, if we're just here as the result of the strong eliminating the weak, if we're just a blob of atoms, a bit of slime, here in a purposeless existence? If you and I are just a collection of atoms and the biochemistry in our bodies, Why do we ask big questions? Why do we care about injustice? In fact, the Bible says that we do ask those big questions and we do care about injustice because we're not just a blob of atoms here by chance. You and I were created in the image of a loving, rational God a God who loves you, who loves me, and has made us as precious beings, human beings, made in the image of God. Physicists now tell us that the universe is just the right size to contain enough carbon to to permit the existence of life. Any smaller and life would not prosper. Human beings are God's precious image bearers on this vast planet, in this vast universe with enough carbon to sustain our lives. Why? Our lives are precious. That is truth number one. But truth number two is that we're fallen. We have this dignity, but there's also a dark side to our existence, isn't there? The Bible talks of a good God creating a good world and specifically a world in which we as his image bearers have the capacity to love and the capacity to choose. Now, if you were to discover unexpectedly that all the friends you had ever made at school or university or in your workplace had all been contacted in advance of you arriving and meeting them by your mum, who had talked to them and paid them to become your friend, you would probably feel a bit shattered, a bit disappointed because you would know that friendship offered to you wasn't real. You know that love, in order to be real, must be freely offered. For love to be compelled or purchased, or coerced in some way. It would not be true love. And darkness has come into this world as a result of us being given that freedom, that capacity to love, and choosing to use that to harm as well as to love. The Bible describes that in the book of Genesis. Now, sin is not a word that is used a lot in our society, but it's a simple word, a catch-all phrase that sums up what is wrong with the world. Describing our selfishness, describing our use of our freedom to harm rather than to love, to hurt rather than to heal, to offend a holy God. And sin impacts all of us the story is told of a Catholic priest in America who was running a church in a particular neighbourhood that was known for mafia activity. And one day, a very sort of senior person in the mafia, known in the community, came to visit the priest and he said, listen, I'd like to donate a substantial sum of money to the the fund to repair the steeple of the church. The thing is that there's a, a, a condition attached to my donation. And the priest looked a bit worried and said, okay, well, what is it? He said, listen, my brother has just died and I want you to bury my brother and I want you to give him a Christian funeral and I want you to say at his funeral that he was a saint And if you do this, the donation will be forthcoming. But if you do not do it, I'm going to make your life really difficult. So the priest had a bit of a moral dilemma. He was really worried. He was frightened for his own safety. He was worried about the church. He was actually quite concerned about the steeple as well. So he thought about it over the days. He said, okay, I'll conduct the funeral. But he thought, what am I going to do? So the day came for the funeral. And the man's brother who'd lived a life in the mafia Was there, was in the coffin. The time comes to bury, for the coffin to go into the ground, and the priest needs to say a few words. And the priest points to um, the, the burial place and he says, We're all here today to bury this man, and we all know that he was a liar, a murderer, an adulterer, and a cheat. There was an intake of breath. He looked up, pointed to the man's brother, and said, Compared to his brother, he was a saint. Sin infects the very fabric of the world as well as human life. We can try to deny the reality of it, but it's it's an observable fact. We're described as being God's enemies in need of reconciliation, but God has done something about it. Romans 5 verse 8 said, God has demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise the Lord. Through Jesus' death, which is a demonstration of the love of God, Jesus carries away the sin that infects us and spoils our lives. He removes the rubbish that stands between us and God, reconciling us to God. Now, I don't know in your family who puts the bins out. Um, in our um, marriage preparation, I remember at some point saying <laughs> that I would really appreciate it if my husband-to-be would agree to be the one who put the bins out. I'm not quite sure how that came up in marriage prep but it's been an ongoing discussion in our family and a joke because now that rubbish is only collected once every two weeks, it's a disaster if someone forgets, right? All we need to do is drag the wheelie bin to the pavement in order for the rubbish to be taken away. But if we forget, it piles up, it builds up, and it's an offence to the eyes and to the nose and to the look at the neighbourhood, right? God has demonstrated his love for us in this, that that Christ died for us. When Jesus dies for us, he carries the rubbish away. The theological word for that is expiation. He takes our sin and carries it away. All we've got to do is put the bins out. All we've got to do is bring ourselves and our lives to that loving Lord Jesus and he via his king's cross, can carry that rubbish away and bring us home, reconciling us to God. And that means we're free to come home. If Jesus carries the rubbish away, what does it really mean? What does it really feel like? What does it taste like? What's the tangible experience of coming home? I'd love to look at a a quick parable from Luke's gospel that Jesus told, a story that Jesus told to illustrate it. And it's, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. This is a story that's very popular in our culture. Politicians love this story. Hillary Clinton in It Takes a Village called this parable an example of compassion toward people of different backgrounds. George Bush reasoned that the work of compassion was the work of a nation, not just a government. And he pledged that America would not pass by on the other side if they saw a wounded traveller. Barack Obama wrote a speech about fighting human trafficking and he said, and like that good Samaritan on the road to Jericho, we can't just pass by indifferent, we've got to be moved by compassion. In perhaps potentially slightly less eloquent than Barack Obama, our former Prime Minister Gordon Brown spoke in the 2007 and 8 um, financial crisis. And he said, in a crisis, what the British people want to know is that their government will not pass by on the other side, but will be on their side. And on the right of politics, Margaret Thatcher said, no one would remember the Good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions. He had to have money as well. (laughs) Tony Blair, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn all cited the Good Samaritan at some point. So this is a story that still impacts our culture today. But Jesus actually told this story in response to someone who was hoping for and looking for eternal life. And um, here, here, let's let's have a quick look at it. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by a chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I return. Who are we in the story and what would homecoming feel like? Well, who are we in the story? No one wants to be the priest, right? The religious person who doesn't want to bother with a dying man who might inconvenience him and so passes by. No one wants to be the Levite, right? The lawyer whose status and position would be personally and professionally compromised by getting involved, and he passes by. And if Jesus' early hearers, no one wanted to be a Samaritan, a hated class, a race of outsider, type cast culturally as always being the villain. But here's the kicker. In this story that Jesus tells, you and I are not the Samaritan who gives beyond compassion and binds up the man's wounds. We are the betrayed, kicked, abused, attacked victim who's been left for dead on the road we are the man dying on the side of the road, desperately in need of compassion, healing, safety, kindness, contact, generosity, reconciliation, and love. Now, when hard or devastating things happen to us, it can shake us profoundly especially, I want to suggest this morning, if we're Christians and we've thought of faith as protecting us on a sort of relentlessly upbeat path of success. But when Jesus Christ is talking to a person concerned about coming home eternally, Jesus envisages our situation as human beings like this. He says, Life can feel like a bit like being beaten up and left on the side of the road to die. And Jesus is saying, Coming to know God, coming home to God, experiencing reconciliation is to encounter. A heavenly father who does not sanitise, ignore or gloss over the pain you're in or the mess you're in or your direct specific sense of need. Jesus is saying the kind of person who is welcomed, the kind of person who can have eternal life and experience reconciliation is a person who might experience suffering and trauma who might be falsely accused or betrayed, who might feel like they've been left by the side of the road. They've been so beaten up, they can hardly get up again. They might feel abandoned, ignored. A person who can have eternal life is someone who might have experienced being disappointed or anxious or stressed. And certainly a person who is in need A real person who's lived in this suffering world. Who are you in the story? Who am I? We're the person left on the side of the road, beaten up, almost kicked half to death. Think about how Jesus meets the man through this good Samaritan. He saw him. It says he saw him. Jesus sees you this morning. The full extent of any trauma or disappointment that you might have experienced, he sees you. And then it says he had compassion on him. Not a sort of fake evocation of pity, a genuine, deep concern for you and for me. Then it says, he went up to him. This is what our loving God does in our lives. This is real. This is not just an abstract idea. He comes close. Then he bandaged the wounds So he specifically, for each one of us, ministers to our points of need and pain and wound in this world. And he ministers with oil and wine. Then it says, he lifted the man. He lifts him up. This is what coming home to Jesus, being reconciled to God, this is what it feels like to be lifted. How much we need this in our world right now. As Christians, we need to experience this. But if you've never met the Lord Jesus, this is what he offers to do, to lift you. And then it says, he carried him. He carried him on his donkey and he took him to an inn, a place of safety. That's where this idea of homecoming comes in. He carries us to a place of safety, giving us that deep security that we belong to him and we belong with him. And then it says he left provision for him for a further period until his return. And that's the promise. Jesus is going to come back one day, but he's left us the Holy Spirit. So who are you and I in the story and who is the Samaritan? You and I are the wounded person and coming to know God feels like meeting that good Samaritan on the road when you are spent, when you are stressed, when you are in pain, when you are in agony. Jesus is saying, life is not hopeless. There is a good Samaritan for you and me and there is an eternal home that you and I can belong for, belong to. This is who Jesus is for us. This is what it feels like to come home. And Jesus will return one day soon. And he has left us all we need while we wait for him, his spirit to sustain us. Do you hear that word today, this morning? That he is the good Samaritan for you and for me He's the one who lifts us, who reconciles us to God and brings us home. Come home via the King's cross. Experience that reconciliation that God offers you. And this is what it feels like to be home. I'm going to say a word of prayer now. The bands are going to come back as we pray. Can I invite you to stand? We're going to respond to this king who offers us this tangible, real, eternal home. So, Lord God, we want to respond to you this morning. Those of us who are weary and stressed and beaten up in this life, we look to you, Lord Jesus, to be the one who lifts us into your presence those of us who've never met you before, but we're drawn to you this morning. We know we need to be reconciled. We know we desperately need that saviour to meet us as we're lying in pain, kicked off to death. And so today we say to you, yes, please. Please come into my life. I want to come home to you. I just sense there are some among us who've been struggling with a real sense of disorientation and not belonging somehow after COVID. Um, we just f- carry with us at work, even in our family relationships, this feeling of I just don't quite feel safe. I don't quite feel that I'm, 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 I'm safe or that I'm, I'm at peace. And today, the Lord wants to minister his love and his peace powerfully into our hearts by his Spirit. So just receive the peace of the Lord Jesus, the one who reconciles us to God. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to sing a tremendous song of truth right now, declaring who Jesus is and who we are if we belong to him. Amen.